I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is, this, is, this is a major international crisis. If my guy gets shot, if I get shot, if the minister gets shot, if all, you imagine how that would go down. I put my hands up, I was like, everyone put your weapons down. And obviously I'm the head of security. I'd been the head of security for about two years, so I was well known. And um, all the weapons just turned and came to me. Mike was over there, and I'm now looking down the barrel of AK-47s, 9mm weapons. And I was like, put down your weapons, you know, and I, I, was, I was screaming at them. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Denny Denham is a former Royal Marine commando who played a huge role in post-evasion Iraq. After going AWOL from the Marines, Denny worked as the head of security for the Iraqi government. From car bombings to assassinations to kidnappings and ransoms, this is the first-hand account of the realities of a nation at war. Before we get into the episode, a massive thank you to Athletic Greens who have helped make this season possible. If you want to support the podcast and take care of your health at the same time, check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You'll get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Most people take multivitamins, but this is cheaper and easier than buying all the supplements yourself. I take it every morning because of the convenience, with it only being one thing you have to do, and it has a massive impact on my health. I'll put the link athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy in the synopsis to this episode as well, so you can click on it now and order yourself some AG1 by Athletic Greens. Hope you enjoy the episode. Denny Denham, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me on, Andy. It's a pleasure. So you were the head of security for the Iraqi government, the Prime Minister in Iraq? Yeah, well, basically the, the way it worked was that the security of the location of the government was a private contract. The security of the Prime Minister was the Navy SEALs. The, the security of the President, let's say, was an Iraqi security team that had been trained usually by the Navy SEALs or, or something like that. So my job was to be... To be in charge of all of the security, I think three hundred ex British Gurkhas. Um, they were standing the gates, doing patrols, doing on the all the the security, the manning of the security, armed security. Um, I was in charge of them. I did that for almost three years. How many people were you looking after? Like, what was your kind of what was your remit? So in Al Hilla, there was probably at any one time fifteen hundred serving. And non-government organisations, so you had the USAID, you know, all the charities, all the, you know, the work with the State Department, they were all there. Um, so obviously looking after them was the main priority. Plus there was um, lots of military, you know, mostly majors, colonels, captains who were in charge of building water treatment plants, buildings, hospitals, roads, all these different things, you know, and it was just mm. cash to all the Iraqi contractors. There was a lot of a lot of corruption on there, you know. There was nine people, nine officers 
major to Lieutenant Colonel, maybe a full Colonel as well, who were all convicted for federal crimes of embezzlement from that location. And they were military from Iraq or from... American, American military. Really? Yeah, it was a big scandal, big scandal that... Um, I won't mention their names because... Uh, what were they doing? That's, that's the way I am, but... Um, so... I remember one time the this guy, this colonel, had went with the civilian contractor. I remember his name. He was an idiot. Bob Stein, um, who claimed he was Delta Force, and he was basically the money man. He was in charge of the operations of money. So this guy, this colonel and him, went to Baghdad to pick up $56 million in cash. They decided not to take a security with them, so there was just them two cowboys driving to Baghdad filled up their car with $56 million in cash and drove back down to Al-Hilla where they sort of lay out on the foyer of this hotel we'd taken over so everyone could get a picture taken with $56 million worth of cash. So they were in charge of giving contracts to the Iraqis and giving contracts to, um, there was a company called GBG, a guy called Phil Bloom, another guy who ended up in federal prison. I think he may have got nine years maybe or something like that. Um, there's a few dirty stories about that guy as well. I don't mind mentioning these guys' names because they were they were bad guys, you know. And these Phil, Americans Phil, that were doing yeah, it was a company called GBG, and they were in charge of building roads, hospitals, schools, water treatment plants. A few that. red flags when someone comes back with fifty six million dollars and puts it out in the foyer of a hotel. Is it? It's like oh, these guys are. It was it yeah. was a weird time though, man. You know, we're talking two thousand and three, so there was hundreds of millions of dollars contracts. So that I was working for a company called Global Risk Strategies, and I think that was a two hundred million dollar contract in cash to Damien Pearl, who owned the company. We're talking US dollars. US yeah. dollars, right? And his job then was to go and get all the commanders and a guard force. So he tapped into the the. The, the former British Gurkha associations and flew all the ex-Gurkhas out to Iraq um, and then got all of us expats to go out and do um, the, the sort of leadership roles of the security teams. Jesus. So, so when you think $56 million, to me and you right now, looking back in hindsight, for me, is like, that's a lot of money. But at the time, that's how much money in cash was being spit, sent all over the place. There was just so much money being been spent and wasted and um so it wasn't a really a big shock to me it was just a good photo opportunity and you would have to be pretty pure not to steal a couple of those dollars just lying around like i don't know man like there's there's, there's an ethics thing in war isn't there and and, and and so corruption now you always knew if you do something that's going to be full of corruption you're probably going to get caught post-war really it's just the way it works man you know like the, you can get away with so much but then when, for example... But we're talking about the Wild West here, like... Yeah, but see, this is what you've you got to understand. So when there's a war going on, talking American now, and the war going on, the um, De- Department of Defense is in charge of that, right? After a year, Paul Bremer, the governor of Iraq, or the ambassador of Iraq, what you want to call him, leader of Iraq from the American side, he bailed. And in return, um, what came after that was the State Department then took over everything. So the State Department were like, all right, where's the money? Where's the receipts? Where's the paperwork trail? And there wasn't much, man, because people were just throwing it around, you know, for contracts, for... For example, if you if later on when I was working for another company, if we wanted to get to, say, Mosul up north, we had to go through enemy territory. So we would send our Iraqi 
um, advance party team to the enemy and fleece them with money so they would like, make sure that we could get through without being attacked. So yeah. you'd pay off the enemy to get through? Yeah. Yeah, that was that's part of our budget. <laughs> that's weird, isn't it? That's what I'm saying. So when you look back in Iraq, you're like, oh, really? It's like, no, there was money going out everywhere. And the only way you could get through it, certain areas, we worked undercover mostly in the, in the latter part. You know, so we had an Iraqi, big, large Iraqi security force led by the expats. And, um, you know, they're all special forces lads. And it was like, right, okay, we got to go there, send our guys who've got family there to find out who's the threat and uh, make sure that we don't get attacked. Fuck, yeah. There must have been some times where you got attacked, though. Oh, that's five years five years in Iraq, mate. You're not going to... You're not going to get past five years in Iraq without having some hairy moments, right? Really? What was the hairiest? I think if we just go on a, on a time level, the first day I was there, there was a massive car bomb near the checkpoint in the green zone, which I'd just arrived in. And that noise, you know you're in war when you hear a car bomb going off maybe 500 metres away. It rattles your soul. Wasn't there an occasion where you had 20 guns Trained on your yeah, face? Yeah, that was later on. That was about a year, maybe two years in. It was the Iraqi elections. So during the period of time when I was the head of security of the Iraqi government, they had created an electoral committee. So they put in an electoral commission office within the government building compound. That meant there was more security teams, Iraqi, expat, Edinburgh Risk Strategies, I think. That, no, I think that's who it was at the time. They were looking after some of the ministers. And um, I was in my office, and these offices that they gave us, they were, they're massive. So anyway, I was I was in my office. I had like sort of six TVs all lined up, one showing Iraqi news, one showing Al Jazeera, one showing Sky, one showing BBC and CNN, who were always constantly playing, you know, so you could always constantly see what was going on. And we'll talk about that in a minute as well with the propaganda and lies that was coming through the Western side. I bet. Media compared to Al Jazeera and the Iraqi channels who were, it seemed, reporting as it was happening on the ground. Anyway, this day I was uh, I was in my office and my good friend Ronnie Dunnett, a real legend, I love Ronnie, and I admire him. You know, he's, he's, he's been in the fault, he's a Royal Marine, been in the Falklands, he'd been in the Serb War, the Croatia, Croatia War as a civilian running around in a transit van taking film footage of the rebels and the government's forces, like everywhere, he was everywhere. And I just seen him as one of the bravest guys in the world, you know. And, but anyway, Ronnie comes running into my office and he's like, Daddy, come on, you got to go, we got to go an incident. And I was, and I'd never seen Ronnie panic. And I was like, fuck, what's going on? And then he's turned and he's running, he's running down the corridors. And I'm like, Ronnie, stop. What the fuck is happening there, you know? What's going on? He's like, Danny, man, we've got a fucking huge incident. This is massive. And he says, one of the guys who were working on my team um, had pulled a weapon on one of the Electoral Commission ministers. And in in response, all his Iraqi security team and the expert security team from, from um, Edinburgh Risk, which were usually British guys or Australian guys, they've all got their weapons pointed directly at this guy Mike's head. He's like, oh Your God. guy. Yeah, and I was like, what the fuck, man? So I go out, and as I go out, it was literally, you know when you see, like, the, the press after a star, and it's like, look this way, look this way. It was like that kind of hectic scene, but all the guys had weapons and pistols pointing towards Mike. And Mike was white, it was white as a T-shirt, you know, and he was like, he's trying to order them to, to do things. And I was like, what the fuck? And then as I, as I looked, I was like, 
man, this is this is this is a major international crisis. If my guy gets shot, if I get shot, if the minister gets shot, if all you imagine how that would go down. We thought Blackwater would be in trouble when they they had their battles with me, but this was like fuck, you know, and I was like, right, and I just I can remember breathing deep, you know, just looking at the situation and I was like, all right. And I put my hands up. I was like, everyone put your weapons down. Da-da. And obviously I'm the head of security. I'd been the head of security for about two years. So I was well known. And um, all the weapons just turned and came to me. Mike was over there and I'm now looking down the barrel of AK-47s, nine millimeter weapons. And I was like, put down your weapons, you know, and I, I was, I was screaming at them calmly. Do you mean? Screaming Same. at them calmly. How do you do that? You, it's a military thing, isn't it? You've got to raise your voice above the noise, not look angry, but look assertive, and explain the situation. I was going, guys, anyone fires your weapon in this compound, you'll probably find yourself in jail. This is an internet, this is a sovereign government compound. You can't do this sort of stuff. Put your weapons down. And they were just all screaming in Arabic, and I could understand it. It was like, but he did this, and he did this, and... I was like, all right, and then I mean, everyone's weapons started going down. Do you mean? And I walked over to Mike, and he still had his weapon in his hand with his finger. Oh, Mike. Oh, Mike, it was a nightmare. And I was like, I took his weapon off him, and I said, Ronnie, take him into the office. And I managed to disperse the guys. And I said to the Edinburgh risk guys who were expats, I said, wait, wait what's your, where's your head at? Why are you pointing your weapon at an expat? What did they say? There wasn't really much to say. It was most. I'm I'm the guy in command at the time, you know. So it was it was. I got the command. Do you mean there wasn't any arguing back? It was, and, and the minister was still in his car. He'd been kept in his car, but his window was down. I was like, all right. And then and we got done. I said to the minister, and he's he's in Arabic. He's shouting at me, and I could I could, I could understand Arabic at the same, you know, back then quite well. And I said to him, come on, let me let me walk you to your office. And he got out of his office, and as we walked up, he was screaming, "I'm going to heads are going to fly for this." I was like, yeah, fair enough, mate. You know, I'll do what you got to do. And that was a hairy moment. That was, that was, you know, away from all being shot and having bombs flying around, which war normally is, that was probably one of those moments where I didn't really think about that situation until just two weeks ago when Ollie was like, remember that? And he reminded me of that story because he knows Ronnie and that. And I was like, fuck, I forgot about that. But that shows you that would have been quite a traumatic thing for me to experience that I put to the back of my head for 14 years until two weeks ago. When that story came out again, I was like, shit, yeah. That was pretty hairy. <laughs> that is quite hairy. Yeah. That's about as hairy as it gets without firing a weapon. I experienced a panic attack once in my life. And it was when I just arrived in Iraq. I arrived in Baghdad. I went from Baghdad Airport to the Green Zone, all with military, private security military escorts it was just it was massive I didn't feel at all in danger I felt like I was a VIP being taken to the war zone and then I got to the green zone and I was told to go meet the guys from my company and I got to their operations room and I sat down and, I, and everyone's like right you're going to or the, the project manager is like you're going to Al Hilla it's in the south central region it's 80 kilometers south from here and he went on with his briefing of the security the situation the intel brief and he goes it's one of the most dangerous roads in Iraq at the moment, other than the buy-up, which was the airport. I'm just sitting there like this, roger that, roger that, roger that, you know. I'm the only one who was a former Marine. I'm sitting there with guys from the Rhodesian SAS, Delta Force, ex-Navy SEALs, and I'm thinking, right, no worries, yeah, cool. All right, and it all stopped. He's like, right, okay, you meet your meet your transport in 25 minutes down in this location. I was like, roger that. Um, 
uh, where am I going to get a weapon, body armor, helmet? I said, this, this, I was told this would all be issued on the ground. And they all went, <laughs> and everyone started laughing. And I was like, yeah, well, fuck you, aren't it? You know, and you're like, this isn't the Marines now, mate. Welcome to Iraq. You don't have any body armor. It will be issued to you when you get to Al Hilla. We have no helmets. We have no. We have no weapons. We have no ammunition to give you. It's all been used. It's all gone. And I was like, what? He's like, no, go. You got to make the transport. So I grabbed my bag and I remember walking out and, and I all of a sudden just felt like I, I'd never, I'd never had a panic attack before. And I only know in, in looking back in hindsight now that this was a panic attack because this, even to this at that moment I didn't know what the fuck was going on I was like fucking hell, I can't breathe you know and I, and I couldn't literally couldn't fill my, my, my lungs it was like I had this much lung capacity it was like what the fuck I'm walking down the stairs of this Adam Hussein's palace which has blown me away anyway because you've got golden ha- um, handrails the, in the toilet it was golden flushers you know before it had all been raided you know and this is right in the very beginning and um, I got outside and the heat of Baghdad hit me and I just I found myself not just I couldn't b- breathe because my, my well, now no my cortisone levels had risen my, my, my whole body was shutting down basically because deep down in the back of my mind somewhere I'm panicking but I wasn't I wasn't focused I wasn't conscious of it and I hit this heat and I was like fuck I'm going to pass out I walked around the corner to the pickup point and I started, I started panicking I'm even getting shivers talking about it and, and, I, and I felt like I was literally going to just faint a sparrow, you know, little sparrows we get here in the UK, little brown things, you know, little bird, little yeah. tiny bird. Well, you get them in Iraq too, right? And this this sparrow flew in almost like he was going to hit my head. You know, it was like he flew in and he landed right at my feet. And I looked at him and I saw that his beak was wide open and he was breathing like <laughs> like that, right? He's like da, 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 da. and I just looked at him and I just thought, fuck. First rule of crisis: breathe. First rule of boxing. Focus on your rhythm. Focus on your breathing. And I just thought to myself at that moment, breathe. And I was just like, I was able to take a massive deep breath. I don't know why. It all of a sudden allowed me to. And then it's like calming down. I could feel the blood rushing back into my head. And literally as I got to the fourth or fifth breath, a guy called Nick, a US Army sergeant, walked up to me. First thing he says, Danny, you Danny? I said, yeah. He went, right, cool. Took his weapon off, gave it to me. Gave me his, his webbing that goes around your, your waist. It had 15 magazines in it. Gave me a body armour with a plate in it and a helmet. Everything I wanted, you know, that's what caused that panic attack. Yeah. You know, I was like, fuck, it just all came together, you know. And I'm now breathing and because that guy had just given me these gifts, I've totally forgot about what went on. Yeah. And didn't think about it again. It was one of these things that wasn't until I was writing Fighting Your Demons that I was like, whoa. And that's when I realised, holy shit, Denny, you had a panic attack not something I'd ever had prior and not something I've ever had since. You know, it was just one of those out of my comfort zones. I'm in, in the war zone. I thought, yeah, I'm brave. I don't care. I'm a warrior. Mm. That's what I do. And then all of a sudden, nothing went my way. And physically, mentally, everything started to shut down. Looking back in hindsight, again, I think that was a period of my life where I had to face fear every day. And over a period of time, the things that would probably make you petrified just normal do you mean yeah and i think that was the beginning it was like and now men have been desensitized to a situation just poof here's your reality you're gonna have to deal with it yeah you want to run away you know like i've not got a weapon i'm not going anywhere without a weapon you know 
But then you were, I was thinking, right, okay, if I wasn't, there was a second world war, they didn't have body armor, you know, times didn't have helmets, you know, toughen up, you're a warrior, why why would it make any difference, you know? But uh, it all worked out in the end. But yeah, and that and this is what we teach in Breakpoint, you know, we, we go around, we breathe, recalibrate, and deliver. So any stressful situation, where even be your kids giving you shit, you know, rather than just respond and react, You've got to understand that if you're not supplying oxygen to your brain or oxygen to your blood, the cortisol levels just go harder and faster and your adrenaline kicks in. And then all of a sudden you're really clouded vision, you're, you're clouded mind. You can't make great decisions in moments like that. So the first thing you've got to remember, and over a period of practicing, whenever you're in a fearful or stressful situation, is breathe. Three big deep breaths. Do you mean just get them in you, get your oxygen flowing again, then recalibrate your reset rather than just go yeah into the next thing mm. just take that split second just for a couple of breaths nothing will change you know you've got time you always think you've not but you've got time and then deliver your message or deliver your action but that split second two or three seconds when you have a crisis situation is if you can program your mind to breathe then you're going to have a higher um, opportunity to be successful in whatever you're going to do whereas if you don't you could panic you must have been getting attacked quite a bit because the government weren't popular. Yeah, I think we got, I think the last count in the government was 176 rockets and mortars had hit the compound um, with three car bombs. Other than Fern Holland, under my watch, no one died or, or was injured. What happened with Fern Holland? Fern Holland, it was down in Alhilla. Fern Holland, I mean, you know, you meet some people in your life and you're like, She's an angel, mate. You know, like there was, there was just something about her aura, the way she talked, the way she she, she conducted her business. She was working for the State Department. Um, she was setting up organizations for women's rights for the Iraqi women. She had blonde hair. She refused to take security, so she would drive around in the early days. You know, between I got there in July, early July. So July to October two thousand and three, it wasn't really a war. It was kind of, we were liberators and we were there to help them, and which would become the enemy hadn't reorganized themselves yet. So it was kind of the feeling of freedom, you know, it was a, we did well to be here and help these people because the Iraqi people were so grateful that we were there. So for the first few months she was driving, she was going around and she didn't have any security. And then she was going around with, with military security, but she didn't, she didn't want it, she didn't like it. When she came back in February of 2004, she was working for the government directly and she didn't have a security, she didn't have a security detail assigned to her. And I'd said to Fern, you know, like, if you need security at any time, just let us know, we'll do it. You know, so we helped her out a couple of times. Um, there, there was a, a gathering of people this night, there was a couple of beers, you got a couple of beers um, were brought in, so it was like you could go up to the recreational area and the bar was sort of serving two beers maximum for everyone. And um, I got talking to Fern and she was telling me that she had been um, helping this older woman who had been had, had her property taken from the bath party. And during that time, some guy and his family moved into that property, leaving them living on a derelict building in the farm. And she said, I've told the mayor to evict him, but the mayor doesn't seem to want to do that it just goes around in circles so i've now got the demolition team going there tomorrow to demolish his house he's been given so many warnings it's not his property i'm going to demolish that house and get him off the land and i, and I was listening to her but she was, and she was going into detail and she was tiny little thing like long blonde hair blue eyes tiny and i let her finish and she probably had a good 20 minutes when she just kept on talking and i was like fern 
what are you doing? You know, this is this is dangerous, man. This is a former high-up Bath Party player mm. that you're going through the mayor of Diwania, who's also a Bath Party player, oh. and all of their, their, their teams were Bath Party players. The Bath Party was the major party during Saddam Hussein's rule. That's right. They were the bad guys. They and, were and, awful. And, and I said to her, look, you, you can't, do this. Who have you told? You know, who have you told in, in the, the government? You're now working for the government. You're not working for the USA. Who, who have you told? She goes, no one. I said, Fern, I need to report this. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't not report this. So obviously reporting it up my chain of command as a private security is going nowhere. No one cares. It has to be locally. So I reported it to a guy called Colonel Hoffengardner, another one of the guys who went to prison. I reported to the CIA. I reported it to the NCIS later on that evening. You know, I went to the watch room, so maybe at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, I told everyone. I told my Gurkhas on all the gates, you know, like, Fern Holland does not leave this camp today, meaning the morning. She's banned. She must not be allowed out. And um, anyway, so I, 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 so I continued to advise her how things work, and she knew how things work. She was not stupid. She, she, was, she was wise, but she had decided that she was going to take the law into her own hands, basically. And um, so I got up normally, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock every morning, still this routine in my life, and, and I got up. I went down to the gym, had a, had a shower, went to breakfast. I'm looking around, and I can't see her. I go to the Guckers, this fan left. No, they say. Go to her office. Nothing. I'm like, all right. And then one of the Gurkhas said, there's a guy here asking for Fen Holland at the gate, the main gate. I was like, okay, just tell him she's not here. I wish I'd gone because that was the guy that she was demolishing his house. She left the camp around 6, between 6 and 6.30, just before the, the shift changed, so night shift, day shift, no, just after. So the day shift had just come on and, um, and off they trotted deliberately because they knew I was banning them, you know what I mean? And um, the 4 o'clock, 4.30, I got a call from the special branch of the police saying, hey, Denny, we've got a, we've, we've pulled over a car and there's three people in the boot of the car and we think it might become, they might come from your camp. Long story short, turns out Fern Holland, Bob Zengers and Salwa, the translator, were shot to pieces in the car by a false, a, 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 a checkpoint pretending to be Iraqi police and wiped them out because earlier on that day, she managed to demolish that house and she was assassinated for that reason. Yeah. And she used to drive around Al Hilla and, and she would have her windows down and her long blonde hair would be blowing, you know, well everyone's got a hijab on, you know, you just imagine she had caused a lot of people in that part of the world to hate her and want her dead. So yeah, she was she was assassinated. That was hard, man. I, I, that was the first person. That was real war for us. That was the first person under my command that I'd lost. I probably put it in my head that, yeah, I did everything I could. It's not my responsibility because she was U.S. government. And the U.S. government had overruled my... That, that's what it was. Hoffengardner and another the other colonel had overruled my ban. And that's how they got out of that camp. That's wrong. That's right. I forgot about that. So the U.S. government overruled your ban. And the military... She- so the military who were in that, that location had sort of said, no, over, overruled Denny there. Let them go to Kabul or Najaf, the women's centre they were going to. There's an FBI re- investigation about it. Fern Holland... I, I believe there's university awards and stuff, the Fern Holland Awards, go out every year to to remember her courageous 
fight for women's rights and equality. A real, real, a real special person. Yeah. So to lose her, yeah, that was the beginning of its war, you know. And things started escalating a lot after that. Yeah. And then it was there was more incidents like every week or every every few days there was an incident. There was a kidnapping, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. So that was Mohammed, one of my client. Um, Mohammed, he was. Um, it was a strange one. His wife, he'd wife, a wife and two kids. The wife's father was a minister um, in the Iraqi government, and the- even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Whole family got kidnapped at one point. I was on leave. This is about, this one sticks deep, you know. Um, I didn't take too much leave um, there. You know, some people would work on six weeks on, six weeks off, or, you know, and I got into this routine. It was near the end of my time. And um, in the in the period of time I was on leave working with my partner, um, Mohammed and his wife and two children got kidnapped. The wife and two children were released, but kept in house imprisonment in this area of Baghdad um, by the terrorists, right, by the bad guys. And we knew this, right, but we also had guys from the Sunnis in that region who could make sure she was all right. Do you know what I mean? And we also had guys who were high up in what we would call the terrorists or the, the bad guys' organisations. We, you know, it's SBS management, all SBS lads running it, you know, so they had contacts everywhere. So we dies on, you know, we knew it was going on. And when I got back, Mohammed, the hunt for Mohammed was real, do you know what I mean? And we had to organ- part of an insurance policies, you know, like the, we had a hostage negotiator attached to the case and all that sort of stuff. We're looking for Mohammed. We can't find him. We've put the word out to the Red Cross, all the organisations that would potentially hospitals and all that sort of stuff. No one's seen him. We've got the guys who have now got contacts with all the Al-Qaeda people and all that sort of stuff, you know, and we're we're, we're paying for money for information. I think it was maybe, maybe $20,000 was handed over at some point, you know, and nothing was coming back. No proof of life was coming back and all that sort of stuff. And then in the end... The Red Cross got in touch with me with a picture of Muhammad with a bullet wound in his forehead, and he'd been killed not long after the family had been released. You know what I mean? So, all the Al Qaeda contacts and all the gangsters who said they could get into this—they were all just lying. They were just embezzling money and and stuff like that. And when we found out that was going on, the Iraqi guys who were with—they clashed with the other guys. It was a very a bloody, a bloody event. So the guys on your side, the Iraqi guys on your side, went after the guys that were lying mess. and taking money. It's all about saving face, you know. If you if you're going to, in Allah's name, be honest and honourable, then you should be, you know. Or God help you, you know. And it was war, and the Iraqis upon the Iraqis took their retribution. 
Um, so anyway, so that that put us in a, a high state of alert. Um, we had to now go and rescue the wife and the two children. We'd, we'd been organising this at the same time. They were always going to be um, rescued, but we just waited and we waited and waited to see if we could get Muhammad back. As soon as we knew Muhammad was dead, the next phase kicked in, which meant we had to rescue her. So our Iraqi guys go in. I didn't go in. I, we, we go out as a convoy. I hide, you know, you know, how I look. You know, I can I can pretend to be Iraqi, but Iraqis can tell I'm not. Mm. And um, so my vehicle pulls off the dog leg. They go in, extract Muhammad's wife and his two children. They then come with me, and then we we get them to buy up, or we get them to the the international airport. And I sit with these people for three hours waiting for their flight. The longest three hours of my life. The boy is the same age as my stepdaughter, and the girl was exactly the same age as my son. And I'm having to tell them that their dad's not going to come back again. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And speak to the wife and console the wife inside the airport departure lounge, where we know there's loads of enemy fucking eyes everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just the good guys that were escaping. There was a lot of bad guys escaping. Because they'd given information, it was just a real, t- real tough time. And, du- and during that period, you know, of course, I've never shown any emotion. I'm stoic and I'm st- strength to you guys. It's going to be okay. And then, as I I left them, fuck, dude, that was it was such an emotional. I, I'm talking to the little girl who's the same age as my son, thinking maybe my, my maybe Ollie will end up telling my son this story. Do you mean? Yeah. I don't know, man. I've been a warrior since I was 16. Been a, been a military guy since I was 16. I'd never taken a mortal look at myself. And at that point, I was like, fuck. I just saw myself. I saw literally Ollie in my position telling my son that your dad's not going to come back. But he was a brave guy, you know? Yeah. And then, obviously, we go back and it was just another incident. But then after that, there was a little part in the back of my head was was uncertain. You've got quite strong opinions on Saddam, but you've also got quite strong opinions on Bush and Blair and their involvement in actually going in there, haven't you? Yeah. On the last operation in Iraq, I started to realise corruption existed within our own governments. Until that point, I was a loyal servant. Do you know what I mean? So when I went out to Iraq, I was I was there to help the West create something positive for the Iraqi people and was proud of it because that's the story I had, you know, and, and I was quite happy with it. It was logically, it seems it seemed good. The reason we went to Iraq in the first place is because Saddam Hussein was building nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction and we were going there to, to thwart that idea. What an honourable thing to do. I've got no worries. And I'm getting paid rock star wages compared to my military career, right? So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm coming out with with $30,000 per month in the beginning, you know, and, and feeling the wealth of my sacrifice to be there when you go back home and you've got two weeks leave, you you know, you're paying for everything, you're paying off your mum's mortgage, you're giving your sister for eye treatment, you know, and two grand here, two grand there, three grand there, ten grand there. No worries. It was just it was a wonderful mm. to be able to be this, you know, servant warrior to be able to go help people that you love. That was amazing. You know, so I'm warmongering, I'm profiteering from war. But at the same time, in Iraq, I feel like I'm doing the Iraqi people a good service. It wasn't until right at the very end, there was an investigation into 9-11. I watched that. I couldn't believe what I just saw. 
I couldn't believe the evidence that was available that didn't match the narrative. Mm. Not going to go down that rabbit hole, but it, it didn't match the narrative. So therefore, it made me then look further into the origins of the information that came for us to go to this war. And it came from a guy called Chalabi. Chalabi was one of the ministers I was protecting in the Iraqi government. So all the information, the we dirty weapons and all that, came from Chalabi. And I'd been working with Chalabi for years. So it was like... Chalabi and his information was quite convincing to those people who were listening to it. So therefore, their intelligence reports were geared upon one human in, right? So what human intelligence... Um, and it would appear that's how the war started. That was the, the information that Chalabi was giving them was taken as gospel. Right. So let's go back a little bit, right? So within the Iraqi government compound in Baghdad, right, it used to be the munitions building. On the basement of there, in the ceilings and the, and the roofs between all the pipes and all the aircon and all that, there was blueprints for weapon systems that were recovered by our guys. And those blueprints had... Weapons of mass destruction. There were blueprints for that. Sorry about the interruption. In our next episode, I'm speaking with adventurer Holly Budge. Holly was the first female to skydive Everest and later went on to summit the world's highest peak. Back to the, the dead. You know, I saw... I, I Sherpa was doing a study of, of how many uh, dead people on the north side. And he said to me, how many people did you pass from Camp 3 up to the summit? And I said, maybe nine. And he was like, just just so you know, Holly, um, I've I've recorded twenty four. I was like, wow, I must have missed them. And he was like, they were right on the trail. You know, it was freaky. You'd be climbing up a ladder, and there'd be two bodies dangling on a rope next to the ladder. You'd be like, oh my god, like zombie apocalypse. But where that comes, where I got quoted for saying that was, so there's the dead, and but it's then there's the near dead. And that's the freaky bit. So you'll see rocks, a body draped over a rock. And you'll be like, oh, another dead body. But then they move. Oh, God. And you're like, hang on a minute. And then back to clarity of mind. Am I losing my mind? You know, am I, am I, is the high altitude like getting to me here? And then you look a few meters to the left or the right and you'll see a Sherpa having a cigarette. Now, these bodies, these alive, unconscious people are roped to the Sherpas, one Sherpa in front, one behind, with a metre rope with the body in the middle. And they're literally dragging them up, dra dragging them back down. The Sherpas told me that they had to hide behind some of these people, prop them up on the summit and hide behind them to hold them upright for their summit photo. So that's why I called it the zombie apocalypse, because I saw quite a few of the thought they were dead and then an arm or a leg moved and then you start thinking you you start thinking you're losing your mind that's coming up next week now back to denny denim blueprints of where they were or blueprints of how they've been built yeah. or the design of them yeah they were basically they were, this was the munitions building so they were actually being built they were being designed they were being designed i would say is more accurate than being built and then years later i was regional manager of a pipeline company an iraqi pipeline company working from iraq and Omar, like one of the guys who was leading that operation, used to be in the Department of Weapons of National Destruction. And he said, we were so close. We were so close. To making them. Yeah, they were close. So 
from my first-hand knowledge of that operation, finding those blueprints and seeing them myself, and then hearing that about five years later from Omar, I'm going to say, well, we were pretty close. Chalby wasn't that far off, but there was no hard evidence. But what I will say as well, there was there was caches of weapons and explosives, and hundreds of them all over the place, like the size of a football field full of weapons and ammunition and stuff like that. So... He had he had plenty of armory, plenty of explosives, he had plenty of plans. Um, there'd been sanctions on him for years and years and years. So the the South Central region, they were really struggling. He had plans, and, and he believed he was um, a descendant from Allah, a descendant from the Prophet Muhammad. Peace be upon him. He believed that he was in line in succession from Ebenezer. He he actually believed that he was of a of a holy. Um, bloodline, and the last thing he said before he was hung is, "God forgive you. What you've done will never be forgiven in heaven." Do you mean? So you, you just don't know me, you know. You, to get in the mind of that, who was so powerful and so unique, was he? Did he go wrong? Was he a Hitler? Was he a Stalin? What was he? You know I mean, it intrigues me. What was Saddam Hussein? How did how did Saddam Hussein come in power? He's, he, he assassinated his oppo- opposition when he when he came into power the next day, lined them up and shot them all. You know, obviously, it takes a certain type of person to get into this way of life where you're comfortable in a war zone. You're not only comfortable in it; you almost go seeking it. Yeah. Why did you choose the military and a life that really does carry so much violence? Yeah, I think I I aspired to be the most violent person that was ever born. You know, when I was a, when I was a young kid, you know, I was I was a young, <clears throat> happy go lucky kid until about the age of thirteen, and then I started getting a little bit bullied. And I've been I've been boxing since I was eleven or twelve years old. I'd, I'd lost eight fights in a row leading up to a sixteen. So these defeats started getting me down. I felt like there was people bullying me that needed to be beat up and beat down, but I didn't think I had the courage to do it, you know what I mean? And then there was just one point when I was about 14, 15, and I think we're right about in Fight Your Dreams as well, is like I, I got battered, you know, by a bully and his, and his older friends, uh, me and my mate Jerry, and um, punched and kicked and fucking... These guys normally stab people, you know what I mean, and, and slash them, so I got to think, well, luckily I didn't get... But I was expecting it. But I froze. I totally froze this this time. And, and rather, I, in my imagination, I was like, "I'll never get bullied. I'll always do this." But when it happened, I did freeze. You know, so there was a a, a turning point after that event. It was like, "I'm going to be more violent and more evil than any of these fuckers." You know, and I'm going to bash the bullies up. I'm just going to fucking go for it, and I'm going to just fight and bite and do whatever I've got to do to win. And always do it first. I'm never going to get beat up again like that. So then I started, when I felt a fight, I wouldn't wait for a punch to be thrown. I would just go straight into it. And I'd be dominant and I'd be fucking horrible. So that was me going into my 16-year-old, 15, 16-year-old. I was starting to be horrible. I was running with the f- football hooligans. I was I was doing anything I could. Oh, dear. Oh, I was I was doing anything I could to be stronger and be more violent. I'm from Scotland, just outside Glasgow. So it was the, the, the 80s, you know, and, and there was... There was and Braveheart hadn't even arrived yet. I don't like, think Braveheart came what, yet. But, it's but, 10 but, years away. But there was just this violence. There was violence in my home. My dad would beat me up. My, my dad even takes the point. My dad, dressed his soul, he's now, but he gave me some of the best beatings I've ever had before I was 16 years old. 
Do you mean kicking the head, oh, throwing from to, onto the walls? And I mean, the beatings were phenomenal, you know. And they stuck with me forever. So I'm being at one point. I'm I'm this timid guy because this is happening at home, and then outside home, I get bullied, which makes me snap out of it. Do you mean so? My dad would be beating me up, and I'd be fucking getting kicked in the floor, punched in the floor, and I'd be getting back up. I'd look at him and go, "Wait, he'd do it again, he'd do it again." And I'd go up again. I'd just look at him and go, "I will never hit you back." Do you mean so? I I was just used to violence. I was used to getting violence put upon me, mm. and hadn't been that used to being able to put, put violence on other people. As I was getting older, I was becoming. I wanted to put violence onto other people, um, and I remember that. That was if I'm going to overcome evil, I have to be more evil. I have to be more horrible than anyone's ever seen before. Always carry the knife. Always ready to to kill. That was my mindset. So my brother, who was also one of the guys in the old, I don't speak to my brother, I haven't done since about 14 or 15, you know, because they used to beat fuck out me all the time. My dad would beat me up and then he'd come in and beat me up for being a pussy. If my if my dad would get him in trouble, he'd come beat me up for, for stitching him up and being a grass, you know, so it was just, it was constant, it was a cycle of violence and it was always in my house. I hated my childhood and the first opportunity I get to leave my home, I jumped to it. And my brother had tried to get into the, the Marines. He'd failed right at the very beginning. So he wasn't like he'd sort of got down to Limston and failed the physical test. He just failed the attitude tests, which didn't surprise me, right? But it made me feel, fuck, no one does that to my family, you know? So I wanted to join. So I started training all the documents he had and training programs he had. I started training re- religiously, running pull-ups, everything I could do. And... um so I joined the Marines in it was 1988. I did my potential recruits course. Um, and then in February 1989, I joined the Royal Marines at 16-year-old. And um, I didn't think about being violent again. I just wanted to be there at their standard, do you mean, of fitness and strength, mental strength and all that sort of stuff. You had something else to think about because you weren't coming home to a violent circle. I was inspired by these people. Yeah. Not not so much the people I was training with. I was inspired by the Green Berets and how calm they were, how assertive they were, how clever they were, how they knew these things, their education, the way they the, the way they were teaching, you know, like uh, you know, their the, the teaching technique, the lecture techniques. The, these fascinated me. It was something that I just I admired these guys and I want to be one of them. And then I've, I've passed out in 1989, became a Marine, went to 4-5 Commando. Prior to that, I'd won the boxing, the Royal Marines boxing tournament. So I'd, I'd sort of, my eight defeats in a row had come to a stop. I started winning fights again. Um, yeah, and and I, it just, violence became, violence has always been natural to me. And um, as the years passed, I think maybe I lost myself in it. You know, I, I lost the, lots of street fights in the in the military back then. You know, and I must have had hundreds of street fights, mate. You know, it was every night of the week I would be in a street fight oh. for years until I went to prison. And really, what did you go to prison for? Street fights. You did know? you? Yeah, yeah. I was in trouble all the time. Didn't you leave the Marines to join the SBS? Didn't you go AWOL or something? What happened there? This is a story, right? So in Northern Ireland. This, uh, the story begins in Northern Ireland, right? So <clears throat> there was a, a colonel, again, I won't mention his name because it could get everyone, you know, mention people's names. People who were there know, you know, and if you were in 40 Commando, West Belfast, 1993, you'll know who it is. 
But this Colonel in charge, he was doing things that was pissing the lads off. You know, he, he always had a pipe in his mouth. He was fat. Marines generally are not fat. We have fitness tests to make sure that we can pass each year. You know, you've got to pass these each year. If you can't pass them, you're on a desk job and then you're getting made to get fitter so you can pass them next time. This guy had not done any fizz for a long time. He was fat. He had a massive double chin. His nickname was the Kurgan. You know, like people hated him. Anyway, so there's lots of incidents and all the lads are pissed off with this guy, right? I'm a lance corporal at the time in West Belfast in, in, in Northern Ireland. And um, the Major General comes, basically the biggest rank in the Marines other than one of the royal family. They come to um, to Belfast to see the troops, right? So there's sergeants, corporals, colour sergeants, sergeant majors, all in this room to greet and tell the, the Major General about the operational tour, right? Now, remember, I'm the Royal Marines, Royal Navy boxing champion. You know, I've got lots of sort of credibility and a lot of... The, the Marines Globe and Laurel newspaper magazine and stuff like that so I'm kind of well known to the people who follow boxing right the Major General walks into the room this day and before he even sees anyone else he goes Denny he recognises me from boxing comes straight to me how are you man alright I'll, I'll speak to you in a minute and he goes round the rest of the guys now everyone in that room prior to the Major General come, had, had, um, coming in had, had said they're going to tell this and this and this and this about the shit things that are happening and they're going to do this and do this and do this and hopefully things will change. So I'm 19, I'm influential, I've got an addictive personality. Anyway, I believe people at that time, what they say, I, I believe. You're naive. I'm stupid, right? And <laughs> this will tell you that this is my most stupid thing I've ever done in my life, right? It was the end of my career, really. It goes around the whole group, right? And there's got to be 25 people in there. And he asks every one of them, How, how's your tour? And rather than say what they said they were going to say a minute ago, they're like, that's good, sir. Yeah, we've done this and it's been great. And they're all very positive. And, and if I could advise anyone, I wish someone advised me, you know, at this point, at some point in my life, not to be so truthful and sometimes just stay on a shallow level rather than go deep all the time. So if you're watching this and, and you th- you've got a, a habit of always telling the truth, pull back, take a few breaths and think to yourself, will the truth help or will the truth not help? If the truth won't help, <laughs> That's what I learned this day. Anyway, so he's, he's come all the way back around to me. He's like, so, Denny, tell, tell me about your tour. You happy? And I just stood there. I looked at every single one of them and then eyeballed every single one of my mates. I looked back through and I went, sir, I could tell you the truth or I could tell you a lie like everyone else did. What do you want? Oh, oh Denny, you idiot. Yeah. And he went, I want the truth. I went, right, okay. This guy's an idiot because of dum 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 dum. The sergeant major Chris Kane, he was like, I think what Denny's trying to say, and, and the major general was like, I can understand exactly what Denny's trying to say. He's frustrated. He's frustrated with the leadership. He goes, Denny, have, have you been in leave yet? Now I was one of the first ones in Ireland and one of the last ones to take leave. That was the way I planned it. I said, No, not yet. And he said, Well, when you come back from leave, I'll be really interested to see how you feel then because you've been here a long time. It's a stressful environment. I was like, Yeah, okay. So off he goes. No, he said to the captain at the time, I don't want any military, I don't want any disciplinary action taken on Denny. I, I asked him that. I made him. Anyway, they leave. The helicopter goes. You can hear the helicopter leave. And literally, as that one gets out of the way, another one comes in. This colonel, who I was fucking giving shit, <laughs> or talking shit about, had arrived. He was out to get me. And... um God, it's a, it's a long story, right? But anyway, I get called over to the HQ operations room, the intelligence room where there was. And the colonel had taken one of the offices there of the OC. And this RSM comes out and he's like regiment, a regimental sergeant major. So okay. 
probably the same rank as the lieutenant colonel in the non-commissioned rank. So you've got corporal, sergeant, and you're all the way up to RSM. And then you've got, you know, lieutenant all the way up to lieutenant colonel, what this guy is right now. And he's coming running at me and he's, he's thrust his pay stick at my chest. My natural reaction, now, I'm kind of panicked. I, I know I'm in shit. I, I'm, I'm decided I'm not fucking taking this shit off anyone. I'll go to prison through this. I don't care if they get violent. I'll go violent, you know. And the first thing this guy, he's, you know, the pay sticks that they have, they, they have their stick and they put it under the... He thrusts it at me and it's gone through my chest and my natural reaction, push him away. And the next thing you know, I swear to God, his fucking legs, his feet are passing my face. Oh, he's only a small guy, right? And I've killed him. But he's kept hold of it. I've just put the fucking RSM on his belly in an operational tour. It's not good, right? And Chris, the sergeant major, shouting, Danny, don't move! Stand still! And he then goes in to tell the colonel, not the RSM going to the colonel, they're all raging, man. I've never seen any, I've never seen men so angry in all my life. These guys were terrible. They were they were not they were not I, I've done a lot of leadership roles now and I can tell you these these guys were bad for the job. Didn't do the Marines any proud that didn't do it us proud at all. Anyway, my sergeant major saying, stand still, Denny, don't look at them, don't listen to them, you know, you've got to take the discipline, you did something wrong, take it like a man. I was like, ah, I'm, I'm, I didn't mean that, you know, like, that was a reaction, man, he, he was attacking me. Anyway, he's come out and they're like, he's opened the door and he's like, you've got to go in, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, and that's why you're supposed to walk in like this. I refused, I was broken by that point, I was like, I was fucking popped in like a, the gangster that I thought I was, you know, he's pulled me threw me out and told me to come back in. Left, right, left, right. Now, by that point, I'm, I'm now if he touches me, I'm, I'm ready to fucking batter him. And he comes in, tells me to take my berry off, and the, the RSM walks up to me and really quietly went, Denny, take this like a man. No, this guy just said it. He's now compassionate, telling me. And I just looked at him and went, oh, fucking way. And that was it. The colonel gets up, fucking smashes Everything throws everything off the table. He starts shaking. His head is bright, flush red. His double chin is fucking shaking. I couldn't believe it, you know. I just kept on looking straight ahead, listening to what Chris had said. I'm okay. He'd cut my my rank off and told me I was leaving, I think it was Bravo Company. I'm leaving Bravo Company, going to HQ Company um, for the rest of the tour. So basically he had me hidden away. Couldn't do anything operational for the rest of the tour. Now, even though everyone said I, fuck it, I fucked up, like your reaction there was the same as everyone's reaction, right? The sergeant major of HQ Company had pulled me in and said, look, you need to leave this unit ASAP. Get out of here. You need to go. Where do you want to go? I can help you. I've got, I've got connections that can give you a job anywhere in the Marines. What do you want to do? I said, I've joined the Marines with one intention, to be SBS. So if you can get me to pull, if you can get me there, so I can get on the selection and just crack on with that, I'll put this behind me. He said, right, okay, I'll do that. And he got me a draft of pool. But that meant I had to join pool. So when we all left Ireland, they went on to a six-week leave period. I missed that six-week leave period and went directly to pool with no leave. Joined security troop. And then within a few weeks, I'd been offered a job as SBS dive store marine waiting to do my selection course. The same sort of course that Ollie and that I've made. And that was it. I was I had the best job. I'm wearing the same uniform as SBS. So I've got all my mates, SBS. I'm just waiting to do the course. I was I was happy. I was I didn't need leave. I had six weeks leave still to have. I had money from Ireland. I was doing all right. And then someone told me that Colonel was now a brigadier. 
and he's coming to get me. He was going to move me out of SBS and put me into Faz Lane in Glasgow, protecting the nuclear base, standing on the gate. That was the job that was coming to me. There was a signal coming out to move me around the Marines to do that. And as soon as I heard that, I ordered my six weeks leave. I took two weeks of that leave and uh, I went AWOL and never came back for eight months. <laughs> so that was my short, my short moment with SBS, you know. And after I did the court martial and, and came back, it was Christmas Eve. No, it was, it was it was 22nd of December. It was SBS's Christmas party. So my last moment in the Marines was at the Christmas party of SBS in Poole. You mentioned your book a couple of times, Fighting Your Demons. Where can people get a hold of that? At the moment, Fighting Your Demons, you can get you can purchase an ebook copy on Amazon. So I'm in the process of formatting that book right now. So if you can hang out there just for a bit longer and join my socials, for example, you know, like um, Danny underscore Denim at Instagram, or Raw Denny on Facebook. If you can jump onto there, our YouTube channel, um, Coach Denny Denim. I'm sure you can put links at the bottom. Yeah, we'll put all the links the in the synopsis. Will be coming where you can get the more up to date versions. All right, Denny. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, man. Thanks very much for having me, and uh, we'll see you again. We will see you again, and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and why not just share it with your mates as well? Share it with your mates. Grow the show. Yeah, man. Get the word out. Grow the audience. Was a legend. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. Well done. Thanks again for listening. And if you have any suggestions for guests or if you'd like to sponsor the podcast, please feel free to get in touch on my social media. Equally, if you have a relative or a friend that you'd like me to interview for your own personal keepsake, we are now doing private podcasts. Just reach out to me on Instagram, Andy underscore Row underscore. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.